This summer, we are working our way through the epistle of James, the half-brother of Jesus. James was a skeptic until sometime after the resurrection when, uh, when he changed his mind about Jesus. James became a, a prominent leader in the early church. His letter, uh, which was written to a cluster of churches in and around Jerusalem, calls his readers to authentic faith. A faith that doesn't just believe the right things, but actually puts those beliefs into practice. A faith that embraces trials as opportunities to grow and become mature. A faith that sees the image of God in each person, that doesn't play favorites, that honors the poor and the marginalized. A faith that values relationships over status and achievements. And today we've reached what feels to me like the crescendo of the letter, the um, the come-to-Jesus moment of the letter. Up until now, the question has been, what does is, what is an authentic faith look like? Um, but today the question becomes, how do we enter this life? How do we sustain it? How do we cultivate the, the posture of heart uh, that we need to actually become like Jesus, to live like Jesus? Before we dive into the text, I want, I want us to just remember who it is that James is writing to. Um, his readers were, were mostly Jewish and they were living under uh, Roman occupation in a world that had come to resemble almost like medieval Europe. Uh, many Jewish families had been dispossessed of their land, uh, their livelihood. They were forced to either rent land or become serfs uh, or worse, to move into the city and become day laborers, which was an incredibly precarious uh, existence since work just wasn't always available. Sometimes you'd want to work and you couldn't. So many of James's readers were poor, and not only that, there were voices in the culture uh, and presumably in the church uh, that were encouraging them to just overthrow their oppressors and seize their goods. Uh, populist voices proclaiming death to tyrants uh, and telling the poor that they were justified to commit murder if that's what it took to get what was theirs. Now, chances are, uh, no one in James's churches uh, actually committed murder, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't significant strife between the rich and the poor. Uh, and even if their situation wasn't as extreme as uh, serfdom or being dispossessed, this was kind of the air that they all breathed. This was in the public discourse. This was in the water cooler talk. So our passage today was largely directed at the poor and the oppressed who were being encouraged uh, by some to resort to violence. Now, don't worry, um, because James has much harsher words for those who actually oppress the poor in the next chapter, and we'll get there. But let's dive into our text, James chapter 4, uh, beginning in, uh, in verse 1. And here we go. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures." James goes right for the jugular, doesn't he? What causes fights among you? What's underneath all this conflict? It's your selfish desires. It's your desires that are bent in on yourself. 
According to James, pride, self-absorption are at the root of every conflict, every act of violence, every broken relationship. We want something, we can't have it, so we take matters into our own hands. When I was in fourth grade, I was obsessed with a baseball player named Ken Griffey Jr. Um, One day I walked into Sunday school and one of my classmates was showing off some of his baseball cards and he had a Ken Griffey Jr. card. And I said, oh, Griffey, he's awesome. And the kid said, eh, he's okay. And I thought, okay. Is this kid out of his mind? He's the best player alive today. What do you mean, he's okay? This kid does not deserve to own this card. So I stole it. Later, when he realized it was missing, he asked me if I had it, and I confessed and gave it back. I know that this is kind of a juvenile and silly example, but it's the kind of thing that happens all the time. It wasn't just that I wanted the card. It's that I told myself a story to prove that I deserved the card more than he did. And then that became my justification for stealing it. In that moment, I was willing to sacrifice my relationship with my classmate. And I was willing to destroy the safety and the trust of our class for a little piece of cardstock with a picture on it. Why? Because my selfish desires. Even though what I did was completely unjustifiable, I found a way to justify it. At least to myself. But do you see what we're capable of? St. Augustine said, you are what you love. Whatever you set your heart on, whatever you desire most, that's what your life is all about. If you set your heart on material comforts or being recognized, gaining attention, attaining to a, a certain lifestyle, if that desire becomes the thing that drives you and you don't get it, someone else does, our unchecked envy, pride, and bent desires will eventually drive a wedge between us and that other person. And from there, we are one self-justification away from theft, slander, coldness, passive aggression, hurtful words, violence, whatever we think will get the job done, whatever we think we can get away with. Selfish desires are at the root of every conflict, every act of violence, every broken relationship. And the scary thing is how normal this can become in a culture. What do you think James would say about the fact that we reward people for creating conflict? You want more followers? Want to boost your television ratings? Just get nasty. What do you think James would say about the fact that we score points with our side by inflaming the other side. Americans have turned conflict and strife into a sport, and we reward each other for it. If everyone is looking out for themselves, if everyone is standing still and expecting everyone else to revolve around them, you don't have a community, you have a cataclysm. Now remember, as we're talking about all this, James is is writing to Christians. He's writing to churches about the dangers of selfish desires and self-justification. The dangers aren't out there. They're they're right in here. 
Sometimes Christians come to church with a mindset of, you know, I, I want to get my own way. I want my needs met. I want my preferences catered to. I want influence. I want power. I want to be in this particular role. I want to determine what direction we go. Otherwise, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. Or I'm going to try to force and finesse my way. I think one of the biggest reasons people avoid church is to avoid pettiness. People with agendas duking it out for supremacy. Sometimes pastors are the worst of all. Guilting people into over-functioning. Saying that it's all about God's kingdom when in reality it's all about the pastor's ego and selfish ambition. Pastors can drive people into the ground. Everyone in his or her orbit feels used, burns out. James says if you find that you're ensconced in nitpicking, backbiting, quarrel, strife, don't look for someone to blame. Look within. Look in the mirror. What selfish desires are poisoning you against your neighbor? What is it that you're convinced you must have in order to be happy and fulfilled, in order for your life to have meaning? What is it that you are willing to sacrifice relationships in order to take hold of? If you were here back in 2013, you know exactly what pride can do to a church. It can tear it right down the middle. James isn't messing around. He's giving us insight into the human heart. Whatever we set our heart on, whatever we think we must have, we will sacrifice relationships, community, peace, whatever it takes to take hold of it. Of course, these dynamics are universal. Selfish desires create enmity and strife at school, at work, at home, in our civic life, with our friends. So watch out. The desires within you can create strife all around you. Not just with people, but also in our relationship with God. How so? Well, our prayer life suffers. James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What's James saying here? He's saying either we don't pray at all. Because we know deep down inside that our desires are selfish and we're almost like embarrassed. We're almost ashamed to talk to God about them. Or we pray, but our prayers are so self-absorbed, God isn't even listening. Do you remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? He said, when you pray, start with God. Start with Daddy in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray, we say to God, not what I want, but what you want. Not my kingdom, but your kingdom. Not my reputation and glory, but your reputation and glory. And then we pray for ourselves. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, give me what I need today. Not, not what I want, but what I need. Daily bread. Forgiveness. The ability to forgive others. The ability to stand up to temptation. There's a, a huge difference between praying like Jesus and saying, give me what I want. They're light years apart. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. Or you're completely out of touch 
with God's priorities. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Our job is to focus on God and his kingdom, living in right relationship with God and other people. As we do that, watch how God provides. According to James, the reason that we fight, the reason that there's so much enmity and strife and conflict in the world is that we have a pride problem. We want something. Someone else has it. So we tell ourselves a little story about why we deserve it more than they do, and that becomes our justification for a whole bunch of attitudes and behaviors that are toxic to relationships. When we set our heart on something other than Jesus and his kingdom and we don't get it, but someone else does, our pride will drive a wedge between us and that person and eventually between us and God. By the way, if we do end up getting it, the results could be even worse, but that's a different sermon. So when you experience conflict, when you experience relational breakdown, when you detect envy in your heart, that's your cue to self-examine. To locate that selfish desire that's being blocked and bring it out into the open. Name it. Confess it. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain was jealous of his brother. God came to him like a good counselor. And he said to Cain, why are you so angry? What's bothering you? Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Name it, Cain. What is bothering you? All right, let's keep going. Verse 4. You adulterous people. Oh, James. <laughs> First he calls us proud and selfish. Now he says we're cheating on God. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? I get the sense James is really trying to shake his readers awake here. Friendship with the world is enmity against God. You have to pick one or the other. Are you taking your cues from Jesus or from the world? Are you trying to please God or are you trying to blend in with the crowd? Here's what the world sets its heart on. Uh, attention, status, upward mobility, physical pleasure, wealth and all the doors we hope that it will open for us, power, influence control, personal autonomy. If your heart is set on these things, says James, then you are not a friend of God's. Are you a friend of God's or a friend of the world's? Who is shaping your values and priorities? Who are you trying to please? Pick one. By the way, we will never drift toward Jesus. Our natural drift will always be toward the world, toward the status quo, because it's the path of least resistance. Because it doesn't require any effort. Friendship with God requires effort. It requires intentionality. It requires discipline. It requires courage. 
The Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. No one drifts toward transformation. Transformation requires a million little decisions, a million little deaths. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. In other words, you have, to, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to your pride. You have to die to your selfish desires. You have to die to your desire to be in control. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans 12 too. He says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. In other words, don't drift. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. See, Paul and James would have got along great. Transformation begins by fixing our attention on God listening and responding to what he says. This is how we discover our true self, our real self, our best self. Of course, all friendships take time. It's no different with God. Friendship requires presence, listening, understanding what God wants, understanding what he values, what his priorities and purposes are. Are you God's friend? Are you interested in what he has to say? Are you curious as to what's in his heart? Are you open to being shaped and influenced by him? Are you ashamed of him? Who are you trying to please? Whose affection do you value most? When you have a decision to make, whose wisdom do you seek? Verse 5 is a difficult verse to translate, partly because it's not actually clear in the Greek who the subject of the verb is, which makes it really tough. Um, I tend to lean toward Craig Keener's translation. He says, God is jealous over the spirit he gave us and will not tolerate competing for its affections. In other words, God wants an exclusive relationship with you. He's not interested in being a part-time husband. He's not interested in being legally married to you while you're sleeping with someone else. You've got to choose whose house you're living in. The world is more than happy to, to, to stroke your pride. God wants to uproot your pride. The world wants to help you cultivate your selfish desires. It's good for commerce. God wants to tame your selfish desires. The world will gladly affirm your desires and encourage you to build your own kingdom. God says, put your selfish desires to death and seek my kingdom first. The world doesn't care what relationships you sacrifice in order to get what you want. God instructs us to lay down our lives for others. We have a choice to make. Is our goal to blend in? to reduce the friction in our lives, 
or is our goal to follow Jesus no matter what it costs us? Are we trying to gain control over our lives or are we willing to surrender control to the one who knows us perfectly and who holds our lives and all of history in his hands? James is tough. He doesn't pull punches. He doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't beat around the bush. Fortunately, every once in a while, he gives us some really, really good news. Take a look at verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor, he shows grace to the humble. God wants to help you. God wants to draw near to you. He wants to make you beautiful. His grace is abundant and available to you. But you have to access it. And the way to access it is through humility. See, pride is not open to receiving help. Pride slams the door in God's face. If we want God's help, we have to come to him empty-handed. To access God's grace, the only thing that you need is nothing. The only thing that you need is need. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Those verses might sound mortifying, terrifying, but they're actually profoundly good news for all of us. James is giving us a road map to friendship with God. The way to become friends with God, the way to heal the rift, the way to heal our human relationships, the way to make peace in our families and communities is through repentance. Repentance is a word that means to change your mind, to change your direction, to do an about face. Now, confession is part of it, to be sure, but it's only a part. James says, submit yourselves to God. And the word submit means to sit under, to adopt the posture of a student or a servant. This is how we begin to uproot our pride. We stop talking. We stop giving orders. We stop telling other people what to do. We listen. We sit. We receive. We wait. Could you begin each day by opening your Bible and saying, Speak to me, Lord, for your servant is here, listening, waiting on you. Could we begin our day like that? James says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We all experience temptation. Even Jesus experienced temptation. It's part of the human experience. Temptation never slides off our back. It's It needles us, right? It entices us. We can't just ignore it. We have to resist it. 
We have to fight it. If we're out of practice, we can get to a point where we convince ourselves that it's just impossible to fight temptation. We just lose every time. Maybe you've given in so often, so long, you've forgotten that you actually can resist it. You actually can say no. Satan's only power is the lie. He can never compel you to do something. He can only persuade you to do something. He says, you know what? You need this to be happy. (laughs) Obviously, God doesn't want you to be happy. You deserve this. You should take it. That's, That's the only power he has over any of us. And you can resist him. We can resist him. You can say, you know what? That's nonsense. Of course God loves me. Of course God knows what I need. Of course God knows what's best for me. Of course I can trust him. I don't need this. My God has promised to supply all my needs. Go pound sand. And if you do this, he will flee, at least for a time. Probably come back later. But you'll get a reprieve for a bit. And the next time it'll be even easier to resist him because you're exercising those resistance muscles. James says, come near to God. This is the language of intimacy. Make your home in God. Rest in him. Breathe with him. Listen to him. Ask him to make his home in you. Ask the Holy Spirit to renew you on the inside, to renew your affections, your desires. Give him the run of the whole house. James says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is the language of the temple. It's the language of sacrifice. Wash your hands means deal with your external behavior. Purify your hearts means deal with your internal motivations. Repentance is holistic. Tim Keller says that religious people repent of the bad things they do. Only Christians repent of the good things that they do for selfish reasons. Repentance isn't just about changing our behavior. It involves examining our hearts, our motives, our affections, our loves. Why am I giving? Why am I serving? Is it for God's glory and my neighbor's good? Or am I doing it for me? So that people will think of me as a generous, kind-hearted person. James says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is going on here? If we mistreat or belittle or use someone, there's a certain amount of pain that they experience as a result. But if we go off and we laugh about what we've done, if we brag about what we've done, if we make it all a big joke, guess what? That only ratchets up the pain. That can compound and make it ten times worse. True repentance, in addition to making amends, in addition to taking responsibility, shows genuine sorrow. We are pained by the pain that we've caused someone else. That sorrow can actually become a source of healing. Acknowledging the pain that they've had to endure, taking responsibility for all of it, not minimizing it, not sloughing it off, not blaming the victim, but owning it with genuine sorrow can not only help restore the person that we've hurt, it can help the whole community to heal and move on together. Martin Luther said that all of life is repentance. 
It's not a one-time thing. It's a regular, ongoing practice that has the power to create and sustain peace in our relationships. The power of repentance cannot be overstated. It is one of the greatest superpowers that we have. For the past 18 months, pundits from all over the world have been asking, what would it take for the war in Ukraine to end? And many have weighed in about everything from diplomacy to an infusion of stronger weapons to stronger sanctions or more restricted trade or direct intervention on the part of the West. And who knows if any of these ideas would work. But you know what would end the war? If Putin repented of his pride and selfish ambition, it would end the world war like that. That's how powerful repentance is. I'm not trying to be dismissive of the complexity of global strife. I'm making the point that repentance is a powerful act. It has the power to end conflict, to heal resentments, to restore relationships, and yes, to end wars. All battles, all strife, all conflict vaporizes in the presence of true repentance. True humility, true sorrow, a true change of mind, it's an incredibly powerful act. It's life-changing. The only downside is you can't force it. You can't compel someone to repent. You can pray for them. You can, you can repent yourself. James began this passage by asking, why are there so many quarrels among you? And the answer he gives is pride, envy, selfishness run amok. Pride is behind every conflict, every act of violence, every broken relationship, every war. That's what's underneath it. And why does conflict rear its ugly head in the church? Because often, even those who claim to follow Jesus are just cozier with the world than we are with Christ. We value what the world values. Status, power, influence, comfort, pleasure, control. More than we value what Jesus values. Peace, justice, righteousness, sacrifice. What's the solution according to James? Repentance, the way to resolve conflict. The way to make peace, the way to stop fighting, the way to heal is through repentance. By going to God and to our neighbor and saying, you know what? I screwed up. I acted selfishly. I cared more about getting what I wanted than I cared about you and our relationship. I am so sorry. I am so sorry for the pain that I have caused you. I am so sorry for the trust that I have broken. I know it's going to take a while to earn that trust back. I've committed to that process. I am so sorry for not prioritizing you or valuing our relationship the way I should have. Please forgive me. By God's grace, I will not do it again. Friends, please do not underestimate the healing power of words like that. I am so sorry for not being in touch. I know that my silence is hard for you. Please forgive me. I am so sorry for being emotionally unavailable to you. I am so sorry for the loneliness and the pain that I've caused. Forgive me. I am so sorry for leaving in a huff when I didn't get my way. That was really childish of me. You deserve better. Please forgive me. You have the power to heal relationships. You have the power to create peace where there was once strife. You have the power to write a new history for your friendship, for your marriage, for your family. 
Now, there are three promises at the end of this passage. We already talked about the promise that if we resist the devil, he will flee. But there are two others. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is astonishingly good news for all of us. What it means is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've wandered, no matter how many relationships you've broken, God is ready and he's waiting for you to come home. He wants to be your friend. God wants to make his home in you. He wants to cultivate a friendship with you that is deeper and stronger and sweeter and more satisfying than you could even imagine. He longs to save you. He longs to give you a fresh start. He longs to fulfill your deepest, truest desires. He longs to lift you up at the proper time. Do you believe this? Becoming friends with God will take time. All friendships do. But what could be more worthwhile? What could be more rewarding? What could be more life-giving? I want to invite our communion servants to come forward. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, he says, this is my body, broken for you. Do this and remember me. Then he took the cup of Passover wine. When he'd given thanks, he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Apostle Paul was writing to a church that was racked with enmity and division. He says, you know, the Lord's Supper, this ritual that we practice together, is the perfect opportunity for you to examine your relationships, especially right here in the family of God. It's the perfect time to ask yourself, am I treating everyone as an image bearer? Am I treating everyone the same? Am I giving everyone the respect and honor that they're due? Am I playing favorites? Am I leaving anyone out? Jesus said that if you're at the temple and you're getting ready to, to offer your, your offering at the altar and you realize that you have unresolved conflict with someone back at home, you should leave your gift at the altar and go home and be reconciled to that person. And what's amazing is this is Israel. That could have been a two or three day hike. And Jesus said that is how much we should value and protect our relationships, our peace with one another that we'd be willing to walk an extra four to six days to do that right. Some of us could just walk across the room. Is there someone you need to apologize to today? Is there someone you need to forgive before you come to the Lord's table today? Even if it's 90% the other person's fault, could you still go to that person in humility? and say, let me, let me own up to my part in this. Can we do that?
Paul says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with one another. This meal is for anyone who goes to Jesus and says, I've made a mess of my life. I need your forgiveness and I need your leadership from now on. And I'm counting on you to show me how life works best. And to the best of my ability, I'm going to submit myself to you going forward. If that's not you this morning, you're here, you haven't figured out who Jesus is or what role he's going to play in your life, so glad that you're here. You have options this morning. You can stay right where you are and just kind of watch this all unfold. Watch as people come to Jesus and renew their covenant with him with these simple elements. Um, there are prayers on the back of your bulletin that might invite you into a conversation with the God who made you and knows you today. The other option would be for you to take a step of faith of sorts by deciding to walk up here. And this isn't your meal quite yet, so you could come up with your hands closed and you'd receive a blessing from one of our servants up here. And maybe that's a way of saying, God, I'm not sure what's going on here, but if you're real, I would really like to know you. I would really like to be touched by you. And maybe that would be a tangible way to express that this morning. After everyone is served, we will eat and we'll drink together as a sign of our oneness, as a sign of the fact that Jesus has taken those who are near and those who are far off and brought them together into one family and made us one. Come to the table. Thank you.